Hello, I'm Alan Libsey, and welcome to the CFA UK In Conversation podcast. This is the show for investment professional, all about issues, interests, and insights in today's profession. In this episode, I'll be talking to Deepa Venkateshwaran, a managing director and senior analyst on European utilities at Sanford Bernstein here in London. Deepa, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Alan. Good to see you. Now, you and I have chatted quite a bit over the years about the state of the electricity market in the UK and Europe. And I just thought we let's talk a little bit about how fast renewable energy has started to take a share of the electricity market here in the UK. Um, on average, what would you say, how much of the nation's electricity comes from wind and solar generation? Uh, so, Alan, what I can say is that last year, around 37% of the UK's electricity came from renewables, mostly wind, solar, but also some biomass and hydro. Uh, obviously, 10 years back, I think this number was 2 or 3%. So we've come a long way in a very short time. Uh, but that's not necessarily the end. Uh, so if I look around in the continent, in Denmark, they've been producing almost 50% of their electricity from wind. Uh, in 2020, which has been a very unusual year because of COVID, with a lot of electricity demand particularly falling off in the lockdown period, uh, we've seen, for instance, in Germany, renewables covering 60% of the demand in April. Uh, so that's, that's and, and by the way, Germany aims to get 65% of its mix from renewables by 2030. So COVID has definitely advanced that a little bit, at least in some months. Uh, and, and of course, we're expecting this, this share to rise all across the board. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and so there were voices out there, and sometimes even at Lex uh, on the column I work on, uh, pointing out the limitations of renewables, uh, renewable energy, as uh, particularly in electricity generation. And I'm thinking about its intermittent nature uh, versus the steadier dispatch from, say, natural gas fuel generation, thinking that this could present problems. But some of these problems have been overcome. But briefly, what, what are the key issues, uh, drawbacks, and uh, we know the pluses, but what are some of the key issues to think about with uh, renewable energy? Sure. Uh, so, Alan, I think you touched upon probably one of the most important limitations of renewables, which is intermittency. So renewables only run when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. So we can't really get renewable energy to necessarily match demand needs. So, for instance, in winter evenings, there's a peak demand in the U.K., uh, when people turn on uh, their kettles, lights, etc., that's not necessarily when we can assure someone that wind is going to be blowing at that point. So I think that's the most important limitation. You can then extend this across seasons. So for instance, uh, if you can see me, the sun is shining very brightly on my face right now. But obviously, if we were having this call in December, I'd be sitting in darkness. So clearly, is there any way to kind of produce renewable energy in the summer using solar and using that in the winter Right now, that technology doesn't exist. Uh, so that's probably the main problem. I think in addition to that, there are some real life issues. Some people don't like wind farms. And so they oppose the construction of wind farms, which we've seen here in the UK, particularly in England, so much so that the government stopped subsidizing onshore wind since 2015. Uh, there might also be issues about getting uh, the grid infrastructure built. So for instance, if we have a lot of wind farms in the UK and Scotland, Obviously, it needs to be transported to where the demand is, which is in the south of the country. So if that grid infrastructure doesn't get built on time, we'll end up um, underutilizing renewable resources. 
And Germany, for instance, has had that problem. They've not been able to get their act together on transmission. So I think these are some of the main issues. Uh, some of them have solutions. So let's look at some of the solutions. So storage can definitely help with some of the daily intermittency issues. So for solar, can clearly store some of that excess energy during the daytime and use it in the night. Uh, equally, interconnections uh, are a good solution. So if you think about combining the UK or indeed any other European country across uh, a larger distance, you can share renewable resources. So the UK could use Norway's hydro through interconnectors. Con the continent could use Spain's solar, could use uh, Germany's uh, wind resources, uh, UK's offshore wind resources. So you could spread renewable resources across a wider geographic area through interconnections. Uh, and then uh, you can also work on the consumer side. So uh, as electric vehicles take off, we could uh, manage the charging of electric vehicles to coincide with uh, maximum renewable output generation. So we could charge our cars here in the night in the UK when the wind's blowing really hard or equally in Southern Europe, you could you could uh, charge more of uh, the cars during the daytime when solar is peaking. So I think there are solutions and, and clearly customer attitudes are going to play a ro big role. But ultimately, if we take a step back, like why I be even talking about renewables, it's because it's one of the solutions to decarbonize. So if society really wants to decarbonize, then there are some costs and nothing, of course, is perfect. So we'll have to work around these imperfections of renewables. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so there are there are issues. Some of them are being overcome. Um, but what what do you think is um, this is another uh, sort of bugbear of uh, of mine sometimes is what is that maximum proportion of electricity as opposed to you know just total energy uh, electricity that the UK can expect to get from renewables um, without. Uh, a, a lot of battery or other types of storage available. Um, is there is there a point where the grid just sort of shudders or can't can't deal with it? Yeah, I think I think for any uh, kind of solution to take renewables deployment above say maybe 60, 65 percent, you will need to work on some of the tools I mentioned. Uh, I think I forgot to talk about hydrogen, which could also be another tool. So you do need to pull all these levers of flexibility. I think previous modeling suggests that the UK could go as high as 70 to 80% from renewables. Um, I think National Grid have done some recent analysis. And in their scenarios, they see renewables go again to 83% in one scenario to 93 in another. Uh, so it all depends on what you're assuming is the flexibility at the consumer level, how much interconnections you're using and so on. Uh, the EU as a whole has modeled that for reaching climate neutrality, uh, we see we get to around 80 to 85 percent renewables. Uh, so I think there isn't really any theoretical limit, but but of course, you will have to deploy all of these tools. And if there is hydro in the mix, so if, if the country has pumped hydro reservoirs, that's always a plus point. In the UK, unfortunately, we don't have hydro. So we can't go maybe as high as the Nordics can go. And some Nordic countries like Sweden and Denmark, they aim at 100% renewables. So, I mean, they, they're, they're obviously blessed with hydro or Denmark mm. is blessed with the interconnections to these other countries. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's like a theoretical limit per se, but 100% is probably quite difficult. And are these providers, and I'm talking about wind farms, solar farms, are they bringing down their costs fast enough? Or are we really at a point where it kind of doesn't matter, there's just an impetus plus a legal requirement and, you know, we're just going to all be paying more? 
Are their costs coming down fast enough? Yeah, I think when it started off, they were very expensive. And that's why you had legal targets and subsidies thrown at them in order to reduce the costs. But now I think the costs have fallen quite nicely. So to give you some numbers, solar costs have fallen by around 80% in the last decade alone. Wind has fallen by uh, another 40%. Offshore wind has fallen by around 30%. So uh, it has experienced very sharp declines. Uh, But also it's not the end of the story. We are just at the tip. In terms of renewable deployment, today the global installed capacity of solar and wind is just north of one terawatt. If you look at our forecast for the next 30 years, we see this increase 12 to 14 times. And every time uh, these technologies basically double in their installed capacity, their costs historically have fallen by as much as 20-30%. Even if we assume a slowdown, we are going to continue seeing very steep cost reductions and the technology does get better. Turbines become more powerful, panels become more efficient. So I don't think we've reached the end of the cost structuring. Uh, but nevertheless, I think the, the financial tailwind definitely helps in, in promoting the deployment at this point. So let's ask a different question. Why do you think um, renewable energy is the most talked about option for decarbonization today? I mean, what, why has it superseded other clean options like nuclear and uh, use of gas coal, but with carbon capture and storage? So I think 10 years back, uh, the field was very wide open. Uh, Nuclear has been a very established technology. It's not even a new technology. Uh, People were talking about uh, the renaissance of nuclear in Europe and so on. I think that was maybe 12 years back. Uh, What's changed in the intervening period is definitely when we look at nuclear, is that all nuclear projects uh, that have been commissioned on this side or or construction has started on this side of the millennium uh, have seen incredible cost overruns. We've seen costs increase by three to five Mm -hmm. times. We've seen some projects getting abandoned. We've seen contractors go bankrupt uh, like Westinghouse. So that, and Fukushima just made things even more complex. There was a safety angle. There was a political (coughs) angle. People just didn't feel safe. So nuclear, I think, has lost the battle mainly because of the cost escalation. And also it's not the size of a given nuclear plant is so huge that if you're not able to manage those costs, it is too much of a strain, as we've seen with these contractors. So I think nuclear probably lost out because of cost, and then Fukushima probably also didn't help at all. Uh, If you think about carbon capture and storage, I think it's never really taken off. Uh, People were talking about it being in pilot stage and getting to commercial level by 22, but here we are in 2020, and we're yet still talking about being stuck in a pilot stage and costs needing to come down. So somehow I think either the companies or the countries that should have lobbied for CCS, which would have been the oil majors or the countries sitting on a lot of hydrocarbon reserves. If they had pushed for CCS 10 years back, you would have seen that. I think now they're starting to talk about it. And in the context of hydrogen, again, CCS is coming back saying, let's make hydrogen out of gas, uh, but use CCS and make this blue hydrogen. So it's coming back in the debate. Hopefully that pushes us forward. But as far as the power sector is concerned, we don't really need CCS for getting to that 65, 80%. Maybe the last mile, uh, because we're not necessarily going to reach 100% everywhere. I think for the last mile, CCS with gas has a role. Probably nuclear has a role in some countries if it's politically accepted. Mm. And finally, um, do you think there's any positive difference driven by the influx of, of ESG funds? And I ask this because 
a lot of money in renewables, at least, or maybe I've missed something. A lot of it's come from the, I, I think, the private investors um, into infrastructure funds. Um, it started in some ways as in through sort of almost venture capital kind of things, and sp which had special tax treatment in this country for retail investors and into solar and things like that. But do you think now there's a the the the, the bigness, the the importance now of ESG funds are making a real difference? Do you see it in your own business? Uh, so I think uh, the ESG funds have made a difference, particularly to the valuation of the publicly listed renewable companies. So it's quite obvious when you see, uh, I think the poster child is Orsted, uh, you know, since its IPO four years back, its valuation has almost quadrupled. It used mm. to be called Danish oil and gas. Now it's called Orsted, doesn't have a fossil fuel business to speak of, has divested oil and gas. And of course, in the meantime, it has witnessed that it's future earnings uh, growth has, has skyrocketed as offshore wind has taken off. Uh, so we've definitely seen that there's some impact in terms of the fundamentals, uh, but I can't, uh, but I'll also say that ESG investors have helped it. Uh, so for instance, if I contrasted it with RWE, which has uh, also transformed itself, but it still has its legacy business. Uh, they've they've uh, uh, increased in valuation 2X since they announced the transformation. Uh, but investors don't necessarily give the company the same uh, amount of credit because there are some ESG investors which just can't touch that stock. So definitely they, they are making a difference in the valuation. I think ESG investors are also focusing companies to accelerate their energy transition uh, in terms of uh, you know how the strategy. So we're seeing that in the oil and gas sector with all, all companies, including DP now uh, latest in the pack to embrace the energy transition and set very ambitious goals. Uh, so I think ESG investors are definitely making the bigger companies revisit their strategy, revisit their capital allocation. Uh, and so that's the role that they're playing. So eventually, yes, I, I, I uh, think they'll play a role. But you're right that so far, uh, a big chunk of the investment has been done by unlisted companies. Uh, but, but for things like offshore wind, it has entirely been done by listed companies. And that mm. is one area, for instance. Uh, that I see a direct role for the ESG funds to promote capital allocation towards. Okay, well, that's all really interesting. I'm sure there, there is really, I know that there is a lot more to talk about on this subject because uh, there are many other aspects of it, but that was really interesting. I, I, I really appreciate, Deepa, you chatting to me and our members all about it. And, and thank you all for very much for listening. Um, Look out for uh, our next podcast, the details of which are in the regular CFA UK newsletter, or subscribe to CFA UK's SoundCloud channel. Find out more at www.cfauk.org backslash podcast. Thanks again, Deepa. Thank you so much.